0: God, worship, as you know, Lord, is defined by our submitted hearts before you. And that, Lord, as we submit our hearts before you, our minds become more attuned to you. And yet, Lord, uh, for thousands of years, your word has worked the opposite way, that your word engages us with our mind and, and then hopefully penetrates our hearts. And so, God, as we have engaged you with our hearts, hopefully focusing our minds, we pray now that as we engage you with our minds in your word, that it might do its work in our hearts. And that, Lord, even more importantly, that it might do its work in our life this week, even Monday through Saturday, as we talk about the subject before us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that all of those things come to us in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So look up here on the screen, and let me ask you a question. What does an 8-track tape, a -a 3.5-inch floppy disk, a Model T car, a Betamax player, and leave it to Beaver all have in common? They're obsolete, right? That's what somebody said. They're obsolete. In other words, these are archaic things. I don't care who you are. They're yesterday's technology. I mean, these are the things that our parents and our grandparents used or watched, and though maybe some of you did that at some point, you're not doing that anymore. If you're watching a movie on a Betamax player, you're a loser. I'm telling you that right now, because no one's using that stuff anymore. And uh, is, is he serious? No, he's just kidding. But, well, actually, I'm really not. But who cares? Um, the reality is, is that none of us use this stuff. And, and so here's, here's the deal. Uh, there are some concepts and words that Christians use that to the rest of the world also seem very archaic. There, there's words and concepts that we use that I'm going to argue with you in a minute that bring life to our soul that are good things, but we need to own and understand that, that the world that we live in hardly has any room for those anymore. You might have noticed that the title to today's message is Walk Obediently, Walking Obediently. And I would submit to you that this idea of obedience is something that our world hardly ever talks about today, and especially not in the context of God. A few years ago when I was pastoring in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, we were talking about obedience, and we decided to send a camera crew out to the streets of Chagrin Falls. And as we did, we simply asked him one question, and that is, what is it that you think of when you hear the word obedience? We wanted to know what the average person on the street thinks of. The number one answer was my dog. My dog. They thought of dog obedience. A very distant answer, number two, was my parents. You know, that maybe grown up, my parents said to me something about obedience. The average person, when we asked them what they think of, when they think of obedience, gave us that infamous deer-in-the-headlights look, like they have no clue what we're talking about. And very, very few people, almost nobody, equated it with God. Nobody said that when I think of obedience, I think of Almighty God and my response or my life before Him. And yet obedience, as you and I both know, is a word that appears like pretty often in the Bible. The Old Testament uses it a lot. Jesus referred to it quite readily. The New Testament writers reference it. I mean, it's a word and concept that the Bible uses regularly. And as you and I are going to see, even uses it as our friend. And so we're in a series of messages here at Scottsdale Bible, as Joe mentioned, entitled Getting the Most Out of Your Walk. But we're looking at some of the things that the New Testament book of 1 John tells us are crucial to developing and maintaining the kind of walk with God that's going to take us the distance in life. And one of the key things that John is going to hit over and over again is this idea of obedience. And so you and I need to talk about it today because though our world might think it's an archaic concept, as you're going to see, the Bible does not. So look at what he says in the next four verses of chapter 2 of 1 John as we take up where we. We left off last week, look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner or in the same way in which he walked." So you got keep or obey his commandments, keep or obey his word, walking in the same way that Jesus walked. This is what John is saying. It's going to allow you and I to get the most out of our walk, this idea of obedience. And though I began our talk this morning by talking about how our world sees obedience, let me just talk to you for a second about how most Christians see obedience. Because what I've found is that most followers of Jesus have a healthy respect for this concept of obedience. But I've also found, and I hope we can be honest this morning about it, that we also have some disdain or leeriness of it as well. And this is usually due to legalism. Some of us were raised in very legalistic environments and we were told that basically the Christian life is a sum of your behaviors, what you do and don't do. And so Christianity for you was introduced as law-giving, a lifestyle that you either adhere to or don't adhere to. And as a result of this, you've kind of had this bad taste of obedience in your mouth because obedience for you means never drinking, not going to certain movies, not touching a deck of cards, not using certain language, avoiding this or doing that it's left somewhat of a bad taste in our mouth because it conjures up either either rote discipline at best or soul confinement at worst and so the questions that i want us to wrestle with this morning are are what does john mean by keeping and obeying his commandments here because i think you're going to find what he has to say kind of refreshing i don't think it's what maybe some of us were taught And what is a right and accurate view of this very real but many times misunderstood activity that the Bible calls us to on multiple fronts, this idea of obedience? Three things that I want to leave you with here this morning. Three things that I think John is telling you and I clearly that I think can blow the doors off of our perspective of obedience and finally usher us into it in such a way that can be life-giving and, quite frankly, not very legalistic. And here's the first thing that John teaches us, and it's this. And that is that God expects obedience from his children because it reveals that we know him we're going to get to what obedience is in a minute but before we can get to that note that John says that God expects this from his from his children because it's our friend it reveals to us it assures us that we know him and so looking again at verses 3 through 6 of 1st John 2 notice with me a pattern that John gives us here in which for the sake of clarity and emphasis, he says the same thing in three different ways. This is revealing. He says in verse 3 that if we keep his commandments, then we know that we've come to know him. And then he says in verse 5, similarly, whoever keeps his word, the love of God is perfected in him. And then he wraps up in verse 6 by saying that if we walk in the same manner in which he walked, then we are in him and we abide in him. So do you see the connection here, folks? keeping his commandments, keeping his word, walking as Jesus walked, this idea of obeying does something in you and me that wasn't there before. And what does it do? It assures us that we truly do know him. It reminds us that we indeed are his and that we're on the right road in our salvation and in our walk with him. In other words, don't miss this. Obedience is a response That you and i have to our salvation that brings assurance but not to be confused with a condition of our salvation or of god's acceptance of us so obedience in no way saves us or allows us to somehow merit eternal life that would be like a good works approach to salvation and that is not what the bible says it's not a condition of eternal life but it is a response to God's saving activity in our lives. It's a response that you and I have, saying, well, God has saved us, so we're gonna follow him and obey him. And again, we'll see what that means here in a few minutes. But first notice that the way obedience works is that because God has come into your life, you now follow and obey him. And when you do that, it lets you know that you're his. It gives you that added dimension of assurance. I don't think verse three could be any more clear when it says this, it says that by this we know that we have come to know him. Interesting, it doesn't say that by this, meaning obedience, that we know him, because that would be good works, right? It says that we know that we know. That obedience is what helps us know that we really do know him. And so obedience doesn't save you, it just helps you realize that you're saved. You see yourself following God and you say, wow, I guess I really am. His. That's the confirmation that obedience gives. How many of you ever heard of the, uh, the famous radio guy Paul Harvey? Let's see a hand raise. Most of you guys know who Paul Harvey is? Yeah, just most of us. Those hands are going to go down as we get more on with our day because we get younger during our day, and maybe some of the younger folks haven't heard as much of Paul Harvey, but most of us have. Uh, Paul Harvey uh, tells these wonderful, cute little stories on the radio that usually have some kind of punch to it. And a few years back, I was driving down the road and I was listening to Paul Harvey and he was telling about, or talking about cattle rustling in the third world country of Uganda and what a major problem that was. And I thought, where is he going to go with cattle rustling in Uganda? And he told the story about how one day in the small village of Mubali, Uganda, there was an argument between an elderly lady and another man which their cattle had become mixed up with each other, and they were having lots of trouble agreeing on whose cattle was whose, so much so that they brought the army in to settle it. And not having any type of branding system in this impoverished country, the soldiers really didn't know what to do, until all of a sudden the elderly lady said she knew how to show them which cattle was hers, at which point she proceeded to call each of her cows by name And as the BBC correspondent there on the ground, Nathan Atungu, reported, look up her in the screen, he said, and to the amazement of the soldiers, each cow heard her voice, lifted its head, and then followed her. Can you picture it? This old lady calling her cows by name and then lifting their head and following her. And as he goes on to say, as far as the army was concerned, it was as strong a proof of ownership as one could find. I love it as strong a proof of ownership as one could find. This idea of cows following their master by name. And so here's how it works. You and I are walking down the road, doing our best to develop the kind of soul walk with God that pleases him and helps us become more like Christ. But because we live in a fallen world that brings lots of confusion at times, we sometimes wonder if we're really his. Can you own that here this morning? I can there are times even as your pastor where I look back on my conversion 25 years ago and I know that was real, but because I'm dry right now or experiencing some maybe real downtimes in my faith, there are times where I even wonder, gosh, am I, am I really His? I mean, my salvation seems so distant and far away. I think all of us experience that. We wonder in the midst of all of our failure and the mundane activity and the shattered dreams and the missed goals if we're really His, if we're really a part of the fold. Even though we can point to something in history that was real, it might not be real now. But here's how it works. Then you hear his voice. You might hear his call to do something radically loving and selfless in the life of somebody around you. Or you might just hear his still small voice beckoning you to read the Bible again and start having quiet times. Or you might hear them tell you to start to hang around Christians again because maybe they'd be helpful for your soul. Or maybe you hear them tell you to share your faith with somebody around you. Either way, big or small, we hear God's voice. And like a cow coming out of the throng of cattle at the sound of the owner's voice, we obediently follow. We engage in some loving act, or we have a quiet time, or we go to Bible study, or we hang around with other believers. And as you do this, something happens inside of you. Maybe not explosive, but something that subtly but firmly reminds you that indeed you are his. That's how obedience works. When you find yourself walking and following him like a cow after a master's voice, you realize you're on the right path. You realize that indeed you are his, and it assures you that God is in your life. Folks, don't miss this. Uh, God does expect his followers to walk obediently. Why? Because he knows it has the power and the capacity to do nothing but encourage our hearts and minds that we truly do know him. That's how it works and it's the first key thing that John wants us to know about obedience. Now, once we get this, we yet have to address and deal with the key issue of obedience, however, an issue that has confused lots of Christians over the years, and that is what exactly is it that we're obeying? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Christians throw this word obedience around, like, all the time, and a thinking person would have to ask themselves, what precisely are you obeying? In other words, when John says here that we're to keep his commandments, does that mean that we become Old Testament once again and become really legalistic in our faith, or is there something else going on here? So here's the second thing John shares with us about our obedience, and this is absolutely key. And that is that the two primary activities of obedience are belief or faith and love. This is all some of you need to hear this morning. The two primary activities of obedience are belief or faith, we'll parse this out in a minute, and love. And I want you to listen very closely, folks, and not miss a key point that John makes in this epistle of his. In verse 3 of chapter 2, as we've already noted, John boldly says that we have come to know him if we obey or keep his commandments. And any biblically aware person at this point has to ask, what commandments, right? Like, what commandments are you talking about, John? Because though John does clarify a little bit in verse 5 when he says that we need to keep his word, most likely referring to Jesus' word and the Bible, what specifically do you have in mind, John? I mean, Jesus didn't go around issuing a bunch of commands like Moses did in the Old Testament. There are some in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as a few interspersed in his teachings. But the clear style of Jesus was not law-oriented, but teaching-oriented and relationship-oriented as he told us stories about God and how to know him. And the reason that this is so important, folks, is because in our day and age, there are some in the church who are modern-day Pharisees. And they basically taken this concept of obedience and hijacked it by turning it into contemporary law-keeping, scouring the New Testament for any and all ethical commands they could find, slapping the label of commandment on them, even adding their own interpretation to them, and then telling us that if we don't do that or do do this, then we're either in or out of this thing called obedience. And as soon as you do that, spirituality then becomes measured by what kind of movies we see or don't see, what kind of beverages we avoid, how many Bible studies we attend per week, what kind of friends we have, what kind of books or magazines we read, and any other behavioral manifestation that we can quantify from the New Testament and measure our obedience by. And though I will be the first to admit that Christians certainly have a lifestyle that God wants us to live and live up to, I would submit to you that I'm not sure this is what John and or Jesus were getting at when they talked to us about this idea of obeying their commandments. And to show you what I mean, look at how John goes on to answer this question for us in chapter 3 of his letter, the question of what do you mean by keeping his commandments. As if reading our minds on wondering what he is getting at, look at what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Look up here on the screen. 1 John 3, verse 23. He says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. You know, once in a while somebody will tell me, I don't think the Bible's very clear. I think it's really confusing. And I go, have you read the book? I mean, it's really clear. This is not confusing stuff here, is it, folks? I mean, he says you've got to obey His commandments. What commandments? He says it right here. The commandment to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. And what you need to know is that this summarization of all the commandments into to believe and to love is often repeated among the New Testament writers. I mean, Jesus did it. They came to him and tried to trap him and say, you know, what are the greatest commandments out of the 400-some-odd commandments in the Old Testament? And what did Jesus say? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these, all the prophets and the law hang. He distilled it all to the idea of loving God, believing him, and loving other people. And then in John 13, 34, during the Last Supper, he said a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I loved you, that you should love one another. Then two chapters later, he says, and this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I love you. John so latched onto this that he will write in chapter 4 of this letter we're looking at, and this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I mean, over and over again, folks, like a scratch CD, you find this repeated call to love others and to believe in God through Jesus. These are the primary commandments. These are the summary and the core of it all. The New Testament is utterly clear about that. And so over the years, I've got to tell you, as I've interacted with lots of believers over this issue of Jesus' core commandments, you know the sense that I get at this point in the conversation? I, I, people don't always say it overtly, but they definitely... of communicate it covertly they they say something like this well big whip jamie believe in love believe in love believe in love i mean what's so hard about that that's easy and obedience can't be that simple and easy there's got to be something more to it than that so let's add some more outward behavioral activities to it that are a bit more quantifiable than faith and love and now we can start to get somewhere with this thing called obedience that's how people tend to respond and i got to tell you, when people start to do that, I think in my spirit, I just don't think you get it. I don't think you get what God is trying to say to me and to you when it comes to this thing called obedience through faith and obedience through love. I mean, let me ask you, folks, since when did truly believing God with unwavering faith and trust around every turn in this fallen world of ours become easy? Well, when did we start thinking that was easy? And when did loving others, and I mean truly loving others, sacrificially, selflessly, unconditionally, as John says, in the same manner that God does, become simple? Have you ever tried that? That's not simple. Simple? Easy? I'm telling you, you just don't get it. If you honestly think that believing God in an unwavering way in his word, what Brendan Manning calls ruthless trust, is easy. That's not easy. And loving others in an agape-oriented, unconditional way is certainly not simple. These are rugged, gritty, hard things to do, certainly not easy things to do in our lives today. It's just that that's what God links over and over again obedience to in the Bible. Maybe this will help. I want to share with you a story. Philip Yancey is arguably one of the better devotional writers in our world today. He's written some great books on how to find God in the midst of our pain, disappointment with God. He's written books on prayer. He's written books on grace. What's so amazing about grace? I've read most of what he's written. He used to write the back page for Christianity Today magazine. He and Colson will kind of switch it between writing this little one-page summary about where we are as Christians in, um, in, 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 that, uh, in Christianity Today. And a few years ago, I was reading the magazine and looking at the back page article, and he was writing about the, the kind of faith that's needed to live in today's world, you know, with overseas wars and a burgeoning recession at that time, and, and the fact that we live in a, an increasingly secular society in which the values that you and I once held dear are not the same. He was just basically saying that, that you and I need faith to live in today's world. But then he kind of put faith in perspective by telling a story from World War II about maybe the kind of faith that God is looking for. Uh, listen to the story. It's kind of parabolic in nature. He says, in a German prison camp in World War II, unbeknownst to the guards, the Americans built a makeshift radio. One day day the news came that the German high command had surrendered, ending the war, a fact that because of the communications breakdown, the German guards did not know yet. As word spread among the prisoners, a loud celebration broke out. For three days, the prisoners were hardly recognizable. They sang, they waved to the guards, laughed at the German shepherd dogs, and shared jokes over meals. On the fourth day, they awoke to find that all the Germans had fled, leaving the gates unlocked. The time of waiting had come to an end. And then Yancey says, look up here on the screen, he says this, and he says, So here is the question I ask myself. As we Christians face contemporary crises, why do we respond with such fear and anxiety? Why don't we, like allied prisoners, act on the good news that we say we believe? He asks, what is faith after all? But believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Do you get what he's saying here, folks? Do you? I mean, there's lots of amazing and even mind-boggling promises in the Bible. Have you read them? Not the least of which is that God is never going to leave you or forsake you. That his presence and his power are always going to be with you. And that even someday he's going to come back, he's going to return and bring justice to all the crud that you and I have to deal with. Either that or you're going to die first and go be with him in blissful, perfect eternity. So like the worst that can happen to you and I this side of heaven is that our bodies stop working and we go to be in the presence of God where the Bible says that our worst day there is better than our best day here. That's the worst that can happen to you and I. But, but that's probably not going to happen to most of us, at least this week. No, we're going to be stuck here with the presence of God in the midst of all that we go through and the hope that he's going to return someday. And so what Yancey is asking is why is it that we are so unlike allied prisoners in World War II? who knew the hope before them that liberation was coming, but even though they were still prisoners, even though they were still locked in that place, they had joy and happiness at peace at the coming prospect of their liberation. He said, why aren't Christians more like that? We got the prospect of our liberation. I, I mean, it's imminent. It's going to come. And he's saying we should be walking around with peace and joy in our souls having faith in what god is going to do but why don't we well here's what yancey is insinuating you might want to tune into this tune into this and that is because we really deep down in the absolute core of our hearts don't believe and trust we really don't believe and trust that god is real and that his promises to return or to deliver us or to at least take us to a much better place when we die are all that real in other words, we struggle with what Paul the Apostle would label in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. An obedience that has as its core a constant, consistent trust in God and his promises. So much so, by the way, that when you trust him, it actually transforms your thinking, it actually changes your feelings about all that's going on around you. Now, let me ask you, do you have that kind of faith? Do you have the kind of faith? in God, through Christ, that when you're going through your own personal hell, you know that he is with you. You know that he's never going to forsake you. You know that he's coming again to right these wrongs, or again, you'll go to be with him. And knowing that, having that kind of rooted faith actually changes your thinking and alters your feelings in the moment. Because I'm telling you, if you don't have that kind of faith, I'm not here to shame you. I'm just saying that might be what you want to start shooting for, because that's the kind of obedient faith that God wants in you and I. The kind of faith that trusts him through any and all of it. That's the kind of faith he's looking for. And what you need to know is that that's exactly the kind of faith that's modeled for us in this book. I mean, read it. There are lots of people who experience lots of things that you and I are going through. Possible death through cancer or some other disease. This book says, water off a duck's back. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What do I have to worry about? Marriage going south after all these years? Kids rebelling and breaking your heart? Job loss or job dissatisfaction? Retirement portfolio not looking so good? This book says, hey, first things first. Though painful and disappointing, God is still on the throne. And these things pale in comparison to what you're going to get in heaven someday. Or even if God pulls a fast one and delivers you now. I mean, that's how the New Testament writers thought, folks. I know some of us think it's pie-in-the-sky theology, but God wrote it. I mean, listen to what Paul the Apostle said at one point in the middle of his worst struggles. 2 Corinthians is arguably his most honest book, where he's honest about being betrayed by friends and having depression in his life and having physical problems that just make some of our stuff look like a cakewalk. And then he writes this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. You've got to latch on to this. He says, for these light and momentary afflictions, interesting way to describe them, light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And some of us are saying, what Paul, are you nuts? I mean, don't you realize that these things make your life difficult? Don't you realize, Paul, that the goal of life is to somehow get beyond these things and then you can trust God? I mean, read some books in life, Paul, on how to deal more effectively with your problems. Go to a conference, see a therapist, take control, manage your life and circumstances better. I mean, get out of la-la land, pal, and realize what a hindrance these things are to your life and your faith. that's what Americans do. And if Paul the Apostle was here today, I believe he'd respond by saying, no, you're the one who doesn't get it, because you say that I need to get rid of these things in order to have faith. And I'm here to tell you that the real task of obedience is to have and maintain faith in the midst of all of these things, and to have that faith can make a real difference in your soul. Whether God changes your circumstances or not, and very well he might, but even if he doesn't, he's still on the throne, and you're still called to a faith amidst anything and everything that you're going through. Folks, make no mistake, this is what obedience is all about, an unwavering faith in God through your deepest and darkest times. And I don't know about you, but it's a real struggle for me. I'm actually comforted by the fact that the New Testament calls this fighting the good fight of faith, because it reminds me it's a battle, and it's where the real battle for my soul is being fought, the obedience of faith. And when seen in this light, folks, I've got to tell you, it's a lot easier for me to make a list of behavioral things that I'm either going to avoid or do than it is to believe in the name of the Son of God with unwavering conviction in the midst of the most unfair and difficult situations in life. I understand why people become legalists, because quite frankly legalism is easier, isn't it? It's easier just to put a list on the fridge of the top 10 things I'm going to avoid, discipline yourself to avoid them, and you feel good about yourself. The only problem is that's not really going to make you closer to God. No, the Bible comes along and says that yes, there's an ethical component to your life, but the core is that you relate to Him, that you trust Him, that you see Him as your Father, good, the giver of all good gifts, and His Son, Jesus, as your Savior, And as you relate to him that way, that's the obedience of faith that he's looking for. And honest, honest, folks, which do you think has more of a powerful impression on your seeking neighbor? The fact that you didn't go to an R-rated movie, or the fact that you still believe that God is good and totally trustworthy in the midst of your battle with cancer? What's going to have more impact on your neighbor? I don't think legalism has an impact on your neighbor. I think the fact that you trust God in the midst of everything speaks volumes to those who have not yet heard. And this is the commandment, John says, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandment. It's not easy. No true obedience is. It's just that the reward is nothing short of his presence. And by the way, the second thing that he calls us to, this idea of agape love... That's not simple either. Do we need to talk about that? It's not simple. I mean, how many of you find it easy to love and forgive somebody that you hate or that has deeply hurt you? I don't find that easy. And quite frankly, Christians don't have a great track record at that. We're not really good at doing that. And yet, what Paul says and what Jesus says, what John says, what Peter says, the core of our faith is. Is learning to love others with a sacrificial forgiving releasing kind of love when they have hurt us the most and all i can tell you is that that takes obedience that's a really hard thing to do Uh, paul youngy cho is the pastor of the largest church in the world paul youngy cho is a pastor of the uh, yoido full gospel church in seoul korea and in his book your god is too safe mark buchanan tells a story of something that happened to choa few years back that kind of reveals to you and I the brutally complex nature of love and forgiveness. I want to read it to you. He says, I heard Paul Young E. Cho speak a few years back. Young E. Cho is a pastor of the largest church in the world. Several years ago, as his ministry was becoming international, he told God, I will go anywhere to preach the gospel except Japan. He hated the Japanese with a gut-deep loathing because of what the Japanese troops had done to the Korean people and members of Yi Cho's old family during World War II. The Japanese were his Ninevites. He says, through a combination of a prolonged inner struggle, several direct challenges from others, and finally an urgent and starkly worded invitation, Cho felt called by God to preach in Japan. He went, but he went with bitterness. The first speaking engagement was to a pastor's conference. 1,000 Japanese pastors. Cho stood up to speak. And what came out of his mouth surprised even himself. He said, and I quote, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then he broke down and wept. Can you picture it, folks? This esteemed national pastor going to a bunch of Japanese pastors, a thousand of them, saying, I hate you. And then breaking down and weeping, Buchanan said he was both brimming and desolate with hatred. Buchanan goes on in the story to say, at first one, then two, then all 1,000 pastors stood up. One by one, they walked up to young Icho, knelt at his feet and asked forgiveness for what they and their people had done to him and his people. As this went on, God changed young Icho. The Lord put a single message in his heart and he found himself mouthing, I love you, I love you, I love you. listen to what Buchanan says. This is so revealing. Look up here on the screen. He says, sometimes God calls us to do what we least want to do in order to reveal our heart, to reveal what's really in our heart. How powerful is the blood of Christ? Can it heal hatred between Koreans and Japanese? Can it make a Jew love a Ninevite? Can it make you be reconciled to, well, you know who? And that's the question before you and I. Again, some of us would rather have the kind of obedience in which we just have a few behavioral things that we obey on the outside to feel good about our Christian faith. God says, no, i got something deeper for you. I'd like you to obey my call to love those around you, even whether it's a Japanese person or a Jewish person or somebody very different for you, a family member that hurt you, a kid that's wounded you deeply, a spouse that you just can't seem to be reconciled with. God calls all of us into the realm of obedience and faith and love. That's what defines us as followers of him. And so you're starting to see, folks, that yes, God expects us to obey his commands because it's through obedience that we reveal that we know him. And yet don't be misled. Obedience is not some shallow adherence to outward behavioral norms. No, it's best characterized by faith in God's promises amidst all of life's difficulties and loving others when they are precisely unlovable. That's what God calls you and me to. That's the life of Jesus flowing in and through us. And we're just about out of time, but there's one last thought that John shares that you and I don't want to miss, and this is a good note to end on. So here's point three. And that is that we don't obey God in order to get it right. We obey from relationship toward relationship some of you are saying, I don't get that. Well, let me explain very briefly. And to explain this, look once again at verse 5 of our text before us. John says this. He says, but whoever keeps his word, and I get this, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. What do you think he means there when he says the love of God has been perfected in us when we obey? well commentators take that many different ways but the way that I have finally settled on that verse is simply this now don't miss this and that is that when you and I truly get obedience that obedience is about faith and unwavering rugged trust that it's about love of another kind selfless and sacrificial that that's relational nature and so we begin our obedience on a relational note with God isn't that so cool we never thought of obedience that way So we begin it on a relational note, and then as we obey and follow God in faith and love, it says that His love is perfected in us. Whoa. So all of a sudden we start with relationship, and then we get deeper in relationship as His love becomes more of a reality in our lives. That's why I say we don't obey in order to get it right. We obey from relationship toward relationship. And all I can tell you is that the New Testament affirms this like all over the place. Romans 7, verse 14 says that we don't serve in the old way of the written code, but the new way of the Spirit. The fact that God's put his Spirit. Now in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We relate, we feel, we think in a totally different way as followers of Jesus now. It's about relationship with him. And as we relate to him on those terms, his love becomes more perfected in us. And so here's the deal. Last week, we ended by confessing our sins before God, right? John talked to us about this idea of sin, and we had a time of confession in the end, and hopefully it set a pattern for you and for me that confession is something God wants us from us on a daily level. But today, we end on a note of obedience, Today my only goal is that you go out of here this morning and at the very least you're thinking more deeply about obedience but at the very most maybe we'll be ready to obey God on his terms. Maybe we'll be ready to obey God in the realm of faith and in the realm of love that he's reserved for you and I. Because all I know is this, most Christians when they become mature want to have some type of impact on the culture around them. We want to have an impact on Scottsdale, Mesa, Glendale, Phoenix, wherever we might live. The reality is, though, the greatest impact is reserved for those who learn to obey by truly loving others around them with a head-turning love that they've never experienced before from a Christian or from anybody, and then to watch you trust God in the midst of everything. That will change this town. That will change you. Let's pray. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one of us here this morning, no matter where we might be in our walk with you, whether we be a seeker or a new believer or a backslidden believer or somebody who's been a solid veteran believer now for 20 years. God, there's not one of us here who doesn't desire deeper relationship with you, deeper faith in you when it comes to our walk with you. And so, Father, I pray that as we 've looked a bit more deeply at this idea of obedience, that God indeed you would lift our sights, our eyes to what obedience can truly mean and be in our lives. God, I pray that you would not allow us to fall into some shallow view of behavioral norms as our sum total of what obedience is about, but the Father you 'd allow us to see that obedience truly is an issue of the heart and an issue of where the affections of our heart lie and our affections and our affections trusting and believing in you and loving others or are they elsewhere father these are hard things to do we can't do them without the power of your holy spirit invading our lives so i pray that your spirit would anoint us and empower us to live the obedience you call us to and lord may it change our lives and may it change the world around us may you do that we pray in jesus holy and precious name amen Hey, before we go, we have one last act of worship to do this morning. As many of you know, once a month we take up an elder's offering for those in need in our community. And once a year, we actually veer from our elder's offering and we take up a special offering for kids that can't afford summer camp. And so the offering that we're going to take up here as we close our service today is going to a lot of kids in our recession-bound economy that uh, aren't going to get to go to camp this year. And we're going to use all these funds to make sure that these kids can go to camp and get to hear about the Lord and even if they're a believer now have deeper experiences with him. So please give generously to this. The uh, ushers are going to come forward right now and why don't we just ask God's blessing upon this uh, time. And we're going to sing during this so you can worship God too. Father, thanks for uh, the fact that you've blessed many of us even in the midst of this recession. Times are tighter, but Lord, there's still many of us who are doing, we're doing okay. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, continue to give sacrificially, that you might bless us, use this uh, uh, to benefit those kids that might not get to go to camp unless we help them. So God, uh, bless us that way, and work in their hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.